The scripture reading this morning is from the Psalms, Psalm 145. Please rise if you are able for the reading. Thank you. Great is the Lord, Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is God's word. Amen. We're honored to have with us to, to bring God the message, Dr. Sing Tan, who's the president of ISI International Students Incorporated. He flew out from Colorado yesterday to be with us today. Um, Sing grew up in Singapore, came and got a, came as an international student and got his PhD at Arizona State in political science and world affairs. Um, he was on staff with ISI for one year and then returned to Singapore where he's been a professor teaching political science and even running a, a couple of different think tanks. Um, several years ago, our past president announced that he'd be leaving for a year, so we put together a search committee for a new president. And Singh was called to be president of ISI, so he left his job, his family. We brought his wife and daughter here, obviously. but. Um, his, his roots and came moved to Colorado, the U.S., and he's done an amazing job the last four years, even through the pandemic of, of leading ISI. He's a humble man who looks to the Lord 
And he's really given um, a lot of freedom to people to try new things. And we have eight new initiatives that he can tell you about, if, or we can tell you about later. Because um, the, the world is changing, and students are changing, and scholars and all. Um, but God is at work. And we're so excited to have um, Dr. Singh Tan with us. So Singh, come and bring your message. Well, very good morning to one and all. Um, thank you for the opportunity to address you this morning, and I'm so grateful to the Church Mission Board and to the pastors for kindly uh, inviting me to be a part of this. Um, you know, coming into a setting like this, I, I live in Colorado Springs now, and I worship at a, one of those mega churches, but I grew up in a Methodist tradition, and so coming to a place like this just reminds me of, of, of all that um, with the choir and et cetera, et cetera. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to re relive <laughs> my past a little bit. So, so good. It's so good. I'm so grateful to all of you for your support of Steve and, and Tosh Hope. Um, we are grateful to this church. Um, I, I, I've heard so many stories of, of countless numbers of you just being involved in, in helping with the ministry to international students here in, in, in the greater Boston area. Uh, you've been drivers, you've been providers of food, which is important for students, starving students, um, and, and just opening your homes to welcome each and every one of, of them from all over the world. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for being the arms and legs and feet and, and, and the mouthpiece of God um, to students from really the othermost parts of the world that have gathered right here in your Jerusalems. So thank you so much for, for doing that. Um, I've been asked to reference Psalm 145, which is the passage uh, for the mission conference here. And, and this psalm is so rich, it is so comprehensive. Um, but I'm going to do it a huge disservice, maybe even injustice, in just plucking one verse uh, and focusing on that, but I saw that verse being flashed earlier on in the service, so I, I don't feel so bad now. So, um, and that's verse 18, a very prominent passage, right, uh, which says, and I'm reading here from the NIV version, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. What a wonderful assurance that is from the Lord, isn't it? So let's, let's pray together as we begin our time in reflection. Father God, thank you that when you call your children to walk with you in spirit and in truth, to be on mission with you, your assurance, O oh God, your promise is that you will be near to all who call on you, to those who call on you in your awesome truth. So Lord Jesus, we are calling on you now and always. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So guys, I want to pose what may seem like a really strange, oddball of a question, and it's this. Is success in missions always dependent on God going with us? Does ministry success necessarily depend on God's presence being with us? And of course, the answer to this is intuitive, right? Come on, of course, right? Of course. Uh, and yet, there's something that God, particularly in the wake of the golden calf debacle, in Exodus 32, remember that situation? Um, something that God said to the Israelites that, to me, is rather intriguing, even ominous. 
in, in, in one respect. And you may recall the scene, right? Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, to receive the commandments, the very constitution, as it were, that would craft and make Israel a bunch of ragtag Hebrews, really, right? You know, into a nation. God is going to make a holy people out of Israel. And, and, and so Moses has been gone for 40 days. The people begin to get a little antsy, right? And, and they tell Aaron, right, we don't know what's happened to that old geezer. Uh, you know, he's, what's his name, Moses? Right? He's been gone for a, for a bit. He may be dead for all we know. So Aaron, buddy, how about you do us a favor? Make us some gods. And we know the rest of the story. Aaron takes some jewelry. He smelts it down, right? Bada bing, bada boom. Out comes a golden calf. And recall the Israelites at that point in time were based in the land of Goshen, uh, which some Bible scholars think could have been the Nile Delta in the lower Egypt area where ancient cities like Memphis would partake in the worship of many other gods, one of which was a sacred bull named Apis. And maybe that's where Aaron might have copied the idea of a bull-like idol from. We, we don't know. Who knows, right? We don't know. But what we do know is what happened thereafter. God was not pleased. And he strikes the people with a plague, and Moses then has to intercede for his wayward congregation. And as Psalm 106 puts it in verse 20, they exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them. And so after this, this incident, the Lord then says to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, from verse 1 on, and God says, leave this place, Mount Sinai, you and the people that you, uh, that you Moses, brought out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the key here. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might just destroy you on the way. So God, the promise-keeping God, he keeps the word that he has given to Abraham and to the patriarchs. He will indeed deliver their descendants to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But notice what he says following on, right? He says, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites and all the other ites, but I will not be with you. I will not go with you because you're a stubborn lot, you're a rebellious people, constantly pushing my buttons, and I just might be tempted to just destroy you along the way. So I will help you succeed in the mission to conquer and to occupy the promised land, but I will not be going with you. Wow. What has this got to do with us today? I trust we don't have a golden calf somewhere here on the premises, um, nothing that's visible at least, <clears throat> you know. But idolatry aside, God's instruction to Moses raises up, the tr I think, the very tragic possibility that God's people could, in fact, undertake their mission 
from God, with the help of God to be sure, and even succeeding admirably in their, in their task, in their mission, with God's help, but without necessarily his personal involvement. To be sure, it goes without saying, right? God is wholeheartedly committed to his people, even when we are sinful and rebellious. Second Timothy chapter 2 puts it this way, right? If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. That'd be true. That's the God that we worship. But let's, let's face it, right? There have been moments when God seemed to abandon Israel when the level of national depravity just became too great, right? The Ark of God, remember that, right? The Ark of God was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and the priest Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth to a son whom she names Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. And Scripture records one such very somber Ichabod moment in Ezekiel chapter 10, where in the prophet Ezekiel's vision, the Shekinah glory of the Lord just lifts and rises above the temple in Jerusalem, right? And it departs from Jerusalem, presumably in an easterly direction. And, and since Ezekiel himself notes earlier in, in, in his book that he had previously seen the, the cherubim, right? The, the powerful angelic beings with the wings uh, that accompany the portable, the, the mobile throne of God by the river Kabar in Babylon to the east of Jerusalem, is it not conceivable, therefore, that God wasn't abandoning Israel as such, but rather he was venturing into exile to be with his exiled people. That's the God that we worship. So meaning to say it wasn't really an Ichabod moment as much as an Emmanuel moment, a God with us moment, a God is shockingly still with his foolish and stupid people moment. God is still with his people who did not deserve him. Steve mentioned that my family and I are from Singapore originally, so we came here to the States to join ISI, or rejoin ISI in my case, back in 2019. And when that happened, the Lord reassured my family and I with a slew of promises, um, amazing, amazing words that God just dropped on us as a family. But the one promise that's been front and center for, for me uh, is from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, and it says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So that was an important word for my family and I to hold on to and cling on to uh, as we sold our home and quit our jobs, you know, ditched everything that we knew and loved, and moving out here to the wild, wild west of Colorado. So, um, but God is so wonderful to remind my family and I of his love for us. But the funny thing was, you know, when my family were then on the flight, literally flying, departing Singapore and moving over here to the States, um, and it was at the airport in, in Japan, uh, in the transit lounge, where we met an American family, mom, dad, kids, all decked out in group T-shirts, you know, we like do family T-shirts kind of thing, and, and on the T-shirts, you know, was printed, guess what? Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. And so I was like, whoa, 
God is so good, so wonderful to remind my family and I of his tremendous promise and assurance. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. But there's a huge assumption, is it not? A huge assumption between what I've just been talking about in Exodus 33 and in the Ichabod moments of our lives and what I've just highlighted from Deuteronomy 31, and it's this. Our God isn't concerned so much about our mission for Him as He is about our relationship with Him. Okay, God, sure, you are obviously interested in the mission that you have assigned to us, your people, right? In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in Colossae to remind one of their own guys, some fellow named Archippus, to see to it that he, Archippus, completes the mission and the ministry that he's received from God. And did not the Apostle Paul himself tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that he, Paul, has fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. In other words, he has fully completed his God-given mission. So the mission is indeed important. The completing of that work to which we have been called is important. But to be on mission with God is really, ultimately, to be in relationship with Him, isn't it? And many have gone on mission for God, but without having a real relationship with Him. In First Chronicles chapter 10, we read of the story of King Saul, Saul who died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the Word of God. He consulted with the medium for guidance. He did not inquire of the Lord. And the question may be asked, right, um, did, did Saul have a relationship with God, the God that he supposedly served? Did Saul not do God's work? Was he not on mission for God? Well, Scripture informs us on several occasions that Saul indeed fought valiantly against Israel's enemies, the Philistines, maybe, you know, the forebears of some of the guys in Hamas who's been doing crazy stuff in Israel today, right? Um, and Saul fought valiantly against these guys, and he delivered Israel from its oppressors. In other words, Saul did his job, sort of. And yet we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 14 that it was only after Saul's victory over the Philistines at Michmash that Saul, for the very first time, builds an altar to the Lord there. And by this point in time, Saul had already been king of Israel for at least a couple of years, maybe several, but he had never, until that point, actually built an altar, meaning to say Saul really had no relationship with God. And so the irony that's, that confronts us is the, is the fact that we can go about God's business, we can even be leading the people of God, and even achieving great success in doing so, but as in Saul's case, without having much of a relationship with God. And by contrast, you see in the life of Abraham and Sarah, right, on the book of Genesis, on, 
on no less than four occasions in the, in, in the book of Genesis, we see Abraham building altars to God wherever he went, where he would then call on the name of the Lord, where Abraham would, as Psalm 145 verse 18 puts it, right? He would call on the Lord in truth. And Abraham worshipped and communed with the God who drew close to him. Abraham had an ongoing relationship with the Lord. In James chapter 2, we're told that Abraham was not only considered righteous by God because of his belief in the Lord, but Abraham was also known as God's friend. And no one refers to another as friend in the absence of a relationship. And at the Last Supper, we remember that Jesus tells his disciples that they are no longer his servants, but they are now his friends because he tells them everything the Father tells him. So Saul didn't really know God, but Abraham did, and the disciples did. But guys, lest that we think that we know God, perhaps the bigger question is this, does God know us? In Matthew 7, right, Jesus issues that very somber warning, that caveat. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me, in fact, on that very day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do amazing things, drive out demons, etc., and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me evildoers. Harsh language from the Lord. I never knew you. I don't know you. These are terrible words none of us would wish to hear from the mouth of Jesus. It seems not all people who enjoy great missional success, great ministry success on earth make it into the kingdom of heaven. And with God's help, they may have even accomplished great things for Him, but so long as they do not do the Father's will, Jesus says, they ain't going to make it into the kingdom of God. Psalm 145, verse 18, right? Let's hear it again. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Meaning to say, in relationship with God on His terms, not ours. So what is the Father's will then? What, what is His work? What's His mission? And we may recall an exchange that Jesus had with the people in Capernaum in John chapter 6. And when the people ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus replies, the work of God, the will of God, the mission of God for you and for me is simply this, to believe in the one that he has sent. A belief that leads us to call on God in truth, to call on God in relationship with him. And that's the key. That's the key for us. And I think Moses intuitively understood all of this, did he not? Moses wasn't interested purely in the success of in mission or ministry success. After all, didn't God already guarantee Israel's success to a point? 
God says, I will send an angel before you, and this angel will drive out all the Canaanites and so on and so forth. So the achievements accomplished in Jesus' name that were highlighted earlier in Matthew 7, right? Great prophecies, demons being cast out, spectacular achievements and miracles and healings and maybe even great multitudes being saved. The list just goes on and on. All of that happened, obviously, with the help and the power of God. I will send an angel before you, and he will get all of that stuff done and dusted. That's God's promise. That's God's assurance. And since all things are possible with God, as Jesus reminds his disciples, right, in in, in Mark chapter 10, God can certainly enable us to succeed in ministry even without his presence necessarily being with us. And despite the presence of sin among God's people, God stays faithful to his word, to his promises. And so Moses, therefore, declares to God in Exodus 33, he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses is basically saying, Oh, Yahweh, oh, great God, Father God, I want you to go with us, not just one of your minions. Um, Be with us, oh God. And if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. I don't even want to be there. The promised land sounds great, but if it were not for you being with us, eh -eh, ain't going to go. And perhaps what Moses might be saying here is that he wasn't really interested in success, in mission success, in ministry success, especially if it means that God isn't going to be with him. For Moses, his very vision, his very mission wasn't even the promised land. It was simply put, it was Jesus. Moses wanted to see God. Moses wanted to be with God. That was it. That was his mission plan. (laughs) Let me say that again, right? Moses' vision and mission, his very purpose wasn't success in mission and in ministry. It was being with Jesus and Jesus alone. And it wasn't even going on mission with Jesus necessarily because the mission was really to be with Jesus. So friends, the thing that distinguishes you and I and a community of believers here is that our God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. It's all about relationship, relationship, relationship. God with us and we with him. And yet too often have I, not you, me, unwittingly allowed Christian ministry, Christian ministry and service, to supplant my relationship with Christ in whose name and to and for whom I minister and serve. It happens all too often and all too easily to my great regret. Many years ago, 
as a teenager, I attended a talk by the great Dr. James Hudson Taylor III, the great-grandson of the first Hudson Taylor who founded the China Inland Mission. And preaching on Christ's great commission in Matthew 28, Dr. Taylor referred to it as the, as he put it, no-go, no-low principle, meaning to say, if the church fails to take up the commission of Christ to go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if the church doesn't do that, then logically the church should not expect to enjoy, let alone see, the follow-up part, the lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world, part of the deal. No go, no low. So let's you and I make sure, friends, that as we step forth in mission with God, that we in fact go with God, that He goes with us, and that our mission is in fact Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that your promise to us is that you will be near to all who call on you, to all who call on you in truth. You, King Jesus, are our vision and our mission. Let it be so, O God. Let it be so. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.